Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, episode 63. Today on the show, I have Cameron Joss, Director of Sports Performance at DeFranco's Gym. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 63 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today on the show, we have back for a second appearance, Cameron Joss of DeFranco's Sports Performance. So Cameron is uh, the director of sports performance at DeFranco's gym. He's been training there uh, for quite a long time. He trained under Joe DeFranco as an athlete and now is working for him as the director of sports performance. Cameron is doing amazing work there. He is one of the most brilliant young strength coaches in the game today. I learn a ton of stuff every time I talk to this guy. And it is really cool to see what he's doing with the athletes there at DeFranco's, uh, specifically the football players. And if you listen to episode 35, uh, you listen, you were filled in a little bit on how heavy sled training, it's its making a comeback. It's starting to become validated by the research in terms of athletes' force velocity profiling. Uh, this is a lot of work that's being put forth by like researchers like Marin, Samazino, uh, Matt Cross. And I think that obviously the pendulum always swings, but I think we're starting to see that gone are the days where we if if the sled slows you down more than 10%, we, we freak out. Um, and as Cameron's going to say too, the heavy sled, it's not, or or if you have a 1080 sprint and you're moving that uh, in that paradigm, a heavy sprint where your velocity is significantly slowed, it is not so much technique training as it is strength training or special strength training for sprinting. So we're going to be talking today about uh, last time you learned what Cameron was doing in a training block with these football players with the heavy sleds he's going to talk about the results of that so how did that end up and what lessons did he learn from utilizing utilizing this training modality so uh, it's uh, really cool stuff and really really interesting in terms of kind of pinning science on this actual kind of popular training modality I know the Jamaicans have used heavy sled type stuff throughout the years and so it's really great to hear 
Cameron's ideas on how that panned out and how to uh, continue utilizing that as, as time goes forth. We're also going to talk about, uh, this is kind of like almost the total speed training and acceleration training package. So not only are we going to be talking about heavy sled stuff, uh, <laughs> heavy sled science, I should say, not stuff is kind of a, is a lesser word there. But uh, we're also going to be talking about special strength, some of Cameron's favorite special strength exercises for sprinting, uh, exercises for technical improvement. Uh, we've obviously talked about before about on 35 about issues with uh, foot, like football sprint mechanics, but uh, what does Cameron use for speed and sprint mechanics as well as what's his kind of go-tos or how is his weight room evolving in terms of developing football players and not just um, high-level guys, but also um, over time, you know, high school up to college up to pros. And what does that look like? So this episode really in a nutshell is total football and acceleration or even team sport speed training along with the lessons learned from heavy sleds. So great episode. Always love talking to Cameron. Uh, Let's get on to episode 63 with Cameron Joss. All right, Cameron, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for having me back. I really enjoyed being on last time, and uh, I'm excited to see where our conversation leads this time around. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, So last time, one of the biggest things that we were talking about is the work you're doing with heavy sled training or or work with the 1080 sprint uh, in working with some football players and speed. Could you? uh, Well, I'd like to talk about uh, the results and what you've learned from it. But before we get to that, could you maybe give the nutshell version of how you were utilizing the heavy sleds and the or 1080 for training your football guys? Yeah. So going back a little while now, back during uh, like combine and pro day preparation season, I was reading a lot of the research by JB Marin and Matt Cross and Pierre Samazino, where they were um, talking about using heavy resistance sprints for uh, improving horizontal force output and just um, improving uh, acceleration ability by by improving uh, that horizontal force component. And so I was not super familiar with it at the time, but I kind of dived into the research a little bit and I, I decided I wanted to test it out just experimentally and just kind of see what happens with uh, these guys that were training for improving their 40 yard dash. Um, so I did a little, uh, a miniature like four week cycle with them where we basically included this heavy resisted sprint work. And, um, the only other sprint work that we were doing were, uh, 10 to 20 yard unloaded sprints that we would do at the beginning of the session. We would just do, um, we were doing probably like four tens and two to three twenties, just like real minimal volume. And then we would go, uh, and shift gears into doing these heavy resisted sprints. So um, basically what, what we had access to was the 1080 sprint, which helped a ton because uh, one of the focal points of the research was that uh, the load of max power is really what we're trying to find, like the, the load that equates to maximal power specifically in the sprinting motion. And so uh, the Matt Cross paper about the heavy resisted sprinting uh, touched on how maximum power in an unloaded sprint typically occurs in less than a second. So it's pretty much just, uh, during the start in an unloaded sprint or maybe the first five meters, but really it's more like the first, uh, you know, three, three to five meters, maybe just within that first second there. Um, and what you do with the 
max power load on the sled is you basically try to take that snippet of the unloaded sprint and you spread that out over longer distances so your your athletes are exposed to that environment for a little bit longer so the idea behind it is that maybe we can have a nice influence on that horizontal force output coming out of the stance um and how that will then carry over into some early acceleration development uh, and basically like just try to launch them out of a cannon or develop the the ability to do that when you're unloaded after training with these heavy loads and improving your force output in the horizontal plane. So that was the idea behind it all. So um, one of the ways you can find that load is by taking uh, 50% of your max velocity. So, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, in the research, they'll say things like you can use like 80% of your body weight or upwards of 91% of your body weight on the sled um, as load that you're towing. Uh, I, I don't really like using percent body weight because I think that that's, um, it's all dependent on friction. So the nice thing about the 1080 sprint is that it, it gives you the velocity output. So what we did is we basically did a force velocity profile on the guys against different loads. Um, and that allowed us to determine what their maximum velocity would be because of the outputs that are instantly displayed on the 1080 machine. So basically what I did is I took each guy's max velocity, um, and I just divided it in half and that gave me their speed in meters per second. And so, um, we did 20, 25 yard, uh, sprints against the load of max power. Cause I wanted to get at least a full 20 meters in there. Um, so I had them sprint to 25 yards and I wanted 20, 20 meters of sprinting where they were averaging about 50% of their max velocity. So the nice thing with the 1080 is it gave me all that data in real time. So that allowed me to uh, instantly see if they were within range or not. And the range I used specifically was 48 to 52% of their max velocity. So if they were um, faster, if they so if they were slower than 48%, it was too heavy. But if they were faster than 52%, it was probably too light. So then that's, that's when I would um, start loading them up a little bit heavier. So we would kind of auto-regulate it where um, if they were sprinting, and then they achieved a velocity that was greater than 52% of their max velocity, then I would just do a little, I would tweak the machine a little bit and get it a little bit heavier on the next rep. So that's what we would do um, during each rep on each session. And, um, you know, I made a point in my last article for Simply Faster where I kind of reviewed my my methods with all that, where I actually laid out the, the workout template and everything. And I made a point to state that we were doing uh, a lot of different things that might have impacted their 40 times because ultimately what happened is uh, all the clients averaged one, about one to three tenths improvement in their 40 time after doing this experiment. Um, but as I wrote in the, in the newest article is that it could have had something to do with the heavy resistance sprinting, but there might've been other influences as well. So, um, you know, we were doing jump training, we we're doing plyometrics, we were doing unloaded sprinting. Uh, before doing the heavy sprints and then we were also doing light light resistance sprinting after doing the heavy sprints kind of like a contrast effect so there were a lot of different factors at play so it wasn't like a crazy controlled research project or even like a controlled case study so it's hard to say definitively that it was because of the heavy sled training that their 40s improved um so that's what i tried to touch on in the last article i wrote so i, I definitely want to get that message out there that um, i think there was some confusion that people saw my case study 
and saw the improvement the 40 times and they thought well all, all i have to do is just load myself up with a heavy sled and try to sprint with it um so i definitely want to put it out there that i think that there's a lot of other factors at play and that that's definitely not the mindset you should have and even the researchers like matt cross and jb marin and those guys they're not they won't tell you to do that either they'll say no you still need to do unloaded sprints you need to do actual speed work and this is just something that can uh be a part of the whole process and like basically part of your entire preparation process for trying to improve sprint uh acceleration performance basically it's interesting when you talk about um the speeds and those types of things and from what i've read in, in your recent work it's almost like the heavy sled is it's allowing an athlete more expo more exposure uh, in a short period of time to those those early contact times, like to the higher force contact times or that type of thing. It's almost kind of like doing an, an isometric pull and trying to improve a lift. Like you're just giving more exposure to the weak point. I think they're actually yeah. very related. And, and uh, the potentiation, I mean, it is kind of, yeah, you're right. It's like tough because you, you're, you know, who's to say that this one thing was the, the make or break, right? Like, I mean, I, I'd imagine if you did a, control research study you probably very well would find uh differences there but yeah it is tough to say i, I sometimes that's like we could at least say oh well, i got good potentiation you know people talk about like overspeed the potentiation you get from overspeed or i always feel good potentiation from doing heavy sleds or like doing a a, a decent even doing a descending ladder of heavy sleds like where you go heavy and lighten up and and eventually yeah. get unloaded i always feel like there's big potentiation there yeah i mean it's it's cool when you when you look at it uh the way that the researchers look at it, at least JB Moran and Matt Cross, they, they specifically say that it's not speed training. They specifically refer to it as strength training. That's very specific to the spreading motion. So if you look at it, it's you're, you're producing a lot of force per step, um, because you have all this load. So literally if you can't, if you can't produce force, you're not going to go anywhere. So you have to like figure that out. You have to propel yourself forward. So, um, there is that positive aspect to it. And, um, at the same time, you have to consider the fact that because the speeds are slower, you can't fully expect it to improve your areas of a sprint where velocity is very high, if that makes sense. So um, basically what you're doing is you're improving your efficiency of propelling yourself in really early acceleration. So you're, you're improving your starting ability and then just the early acceleration phase by spreading this, that basically spreading that starting phase out you know like the first five to ten meters and then just expanding that out to maybe 20 meters now because you're loading yourself up there so i think you know that's definitely important for people to keep in mind that um it's not really speed training as much as it is strength training because you have guys that are um you know certainly very fast or they're 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 they have fast contractile capacity so they're able to uh, move their legs really fast or they're just really twitchy guys, but they kind of, I call it like the Fred Flintstone feet. They don't really go anywhere fast. You know what I mean? So like they're, they're certainly moving fast. Like their limbs are moving quickly, but they're not really propelling themselves in space. So those type of guys probably don't have uh, sufficient enough force per step. Like, you know, cause force is always, uh, it, when it comes to power, it's always magnitude of force or the rate of that force development and then also the direction that that force is being applied. So they might have a really high rate of force development. So they might be moving their legs really fast, but um, they might not have a high magnitude of force. And they also might not be uh, producing 
or, or directing that force in the proper direction to propel themselves forward. So that's where this, um, the, the maximum power sled sprinting or resistive sprinting doesn't, you don't always have to use a sled. There's plenty of devices out there. Um, that's where that can help guys like that is because it, it puts them in a position where they have to learn how to orient their force into the ground in such a way that they maintain that lean that's seen uh, in the first five meters of an unloaded sprint. So now they're, they're really allowing themselves to learn how to launch themselves forward and, and drive through that um, and, and, and use sort of the same mindset you would in those first five meters. And so it allows them to, in theory, develop the ability to kind of launch out of a cannon. But then once you're, once you launch out of the cannon, then you need to continue to build that, that speed and that velocity higher. And that's where you're going to have to start doing unloaded work. You're going to have to start doing um, more upright sprinting work and things like that. Cause you know, there's, there's definitely different phases to a sprint, Um, especially a 40 yard dash. You have, you have different phases and that's just the reality of it. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Do you think that with the heavy sleds, like you had mentioned that uh, Marin and Samazino, they refer to it as strength work, but I've also heard that it could be beneficial for technique in the sense of it allows you to kind of push your, put the, uh, because of the nature of the heavy sled, it allows you to put your foot behind your center of mass a little bit better, uh, if that makes sense. Um, do, so do you, are there, is there any ways that you like are, are technically cueing that? or are seeing technical improvements, or do you think it's mostly found in, in the strength and power profiling? Well, what I've found with doing the sled work, whether it's uh, whether it's heavy sleds, like doing the uh, maximum power sled work, or even just you know slightly heavy sled work, is um, a big benefit of doing resisted sprinting in general is that um, exactly what you said, like the technical aspect of it is sort of built into the exercise itself, so you actually don't even really have to cue it, because the environment they're put in is basically like running up a hill or like running up a steep hill if you're doing, um, you know, very heavy resisted work. And so, you know, it's pretty often that you'll see athletes run up a hill pretty well, even if they can on flat ground, you know, so it's just, it kind of puts them in that position where um, they're sort of doing it automatically because if they're not doing it properly, like I said before, they're just not going to get anywhere with that resistance in there. So um, I've seen guys just sort of figure it out because they they have all that resistance. And there's I've, I've seen it uh, help a lot with guys that externally rotate their feet when they sprint and they don't get that nice plantar push off. I've seen it help with guys that, that have that issue as well, where they're just kind of externally rotating their hip and their feet. Because when you load them up with the sled, again, they're not going to go anywhere because the force isn't being transmitted efficiently into the ground. And then it's sort of like when you add that resistance to them um they 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 become aware of it so it slows them down enough to become aware of it it's kind of similar to doing uh upright like tempo runs at maybe like 70 80 percent just to work on your maximum speed your upright mechanics you know you have to kind of slow it down for a second for them to get the idea of what it is and that's kind of what this does too so even though their intention is maximal they're trying to go as fast as they can um the physics of it they're the velocity is much lower so it does give them more chance to become conscious of these issues and try to self-correct them uh, within that within that environment. So I've definitely seen that happen without me having to give really any cues. It just sort of takes care of itself in a way. It won't always happen, but I've seen it happen more often than not. Yeah, that's kind of something that we were talking about even before we started recording, just like putting the athlete in the right environment 
and then letting them figure it out rather than trying to you know, hold their hand throughout the throughout the the course of what you're trying to do. So Yeah, exactly. Hundred percent. Yeah, I thought that was yeah, I thought that was really cool. Interesting interesting piece there and and yeah, like uh yeah, it's almost like uh tempo training. I'm sure yeah, back when I was running tempo doing tempo sprints, my eight by two hundred or whatever with the track team, I had lots of time <laughs> to think about what, what I was doing. Um yeah. you, know, you you pass the time by thinking about uh, you, you talk about like writing your name a little bit, di- you know, writing your name or signing your name a bunch of times to be different every time. I imagine that there's a lot of people who just, you know, in tempo sprints, there's probably a lot of little variations or, you know, just trying to, or to what Tony Holler has said too, like when they, the, his kids run 10 meter flies, you, it's almost like the kids are trying to figure out on their own, like how to get faster each one. Cause you have that feedback that you get with yeah. sprints. So. Yeah. I, I like using those for that same reason, the, the flying 10 yard sprints and, um, you know, it's funny because I'll have athletes say like, well, when should I start like speeding up? I'm like, well, I'm going to tell you the time. And if it sucks, then you just got to figure it out. <laughs> like you got to, you determine like for you, when's the best time to start picking it up? Because you know, you just got to burst through that final 10 yards, you know? So it's another, that's another example of kind of, they self-regulate just based off the knowledge of the result instead of trying to get them to focus too much on certain things they might be able to figure out for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when they go on the, when they get on the football field, there's not going to be someone, you know, telling them what their split was around the, you know, getting around the defender or something like that. You know, it's right. Like, yeah. There shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes with, uh, sometimes with all the data out there, you feel like that's like the direction the things are trying to head sometimes in the sense, but oh, yeah. it's always, uh, it's amazing what the human body can do in, in processing and, and, and figure. And that's, if anything, that's how I've changed a lot of how I've coached in the last year uh or two is just letting athletes just watching athletes watching how athletes figure things out before you even start to coach them like almost learning from the athlete before you ruin the chance to learn from them by telling them something well it's funny because i you know before the before we were on the air we were talking about Stu mcmillan and it's what i've heard about uh anyone that's sort of seen him coach is that he's very he he, he definitely lets them have their chance to figure things out and that's I definitely believe in that. You don't want to step in too early because, you know, what if you just waited another second and then they got it, they figured it out on their own, you know? So, um, that's the way I see it. Yeah. And that would be so much better if they did it, than you having to tell them do this here. I mean, what, you know, then they never get a chance to learn. All they learn how to do is do what the coach says. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's great. So, uh, looking back, so maybe the kind of the rear view mirror a little bit from, uh, what you, how you kind of ran the guys through, uh, the heavy sled uh, program. Is there anything you would, you know, doing things again or the next the next training session or season with it? Is there anything you might be looking to tweak or change uh, for the next time around in terms of just just the heavy sled protocol or heavy resistance? Yeah, instrument? I think what I would do is um, just for the sake of keeping things a little bit faster. I think I would um, go ahead and use the like the testing that I do with the fly tens and the, and the flying 10 yard sprints, um, where I calculate max velocity off those. I think that's what I, I would do going forward is that I would do, um, a flying 10 test first and see what their max velocity is based on that. And then use that velocity to determine my 50% for the, the heavy sled load. Cause it, it will be a little bit faster than what I did with the 1080. Um, cause I was just having them do just 20, 25 yard runs against different loads on the 1080. So I velocity profiled that or force velocity profiled that. Um, so I think what I would do going forward is, is use a fly 
use a, use a fly 10 basically to achieve a faster speed so that I can get a little bit closer to uh, using faster velocities with the maximum power sled load. So it's a more realistic picture of what their actual max velocity would be, which is more indicative really of what uh, JB and Matt Cross were doing anyway. So I think going forward that that's something I would definitely change, you know, because if you have somebody that's hits a fly 10 in like 0.98 seconds and you calculate that to be 10.2 yards per second. And then you would just do the math from there to where, you know, it would take you like 3.92 seconds to cover 20 yards. So my guys were doing over four seconds, uh, like way over four seconds with, with some of their, their runs. So I think it just, it just makes it a little bit faster. So, um, I think it's probably more beneficial to do it that way because it's more of a true indication of their their actual max velocity output. Sure. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, do you do t- – uh, how often are you doing like fly uh, stuff or top end speed with your football football guys? How much of a portion of your program does that type of thing make up? Uh, well, recently what I've been experimenting with just after talking with Ken Clark a lot um, – who you know a lot of his research is based on that top end speed, that max velocity phase, and how important that is for anybody that's trying to be fast. Um, I've started, I've started implementing the fly ten as like my official test for max velocity. So anytime I want to retest it, I'll just do that. Um, I find that it's significantly less stressful psychologically and physically for guys than running like a forty yard sprint. So I actually think it's a better test to look at team sports speed than a 40-yard dash just because you're actually getting their velocity output, which is more important than their split time anyway because that gives you a better indication of how fast they're actually moving. You know, these guys aren't – they're not truly like racers. So um, obviously when you're training them for the combine, you need to make sure their 40 is good. But as long as their velocity is going up, their 40 is going to go up too. Um, So, yeah, I've been using that as my official test now for – uh, determining somebody's max velocity. And that's actually something we've written on our record board at the gym is fly 10. Now that's a new category that we added, um, for all the different groups that we have. And, um, I'll, I'll also use flying sprints obviously as a training modality too, just to work on that top end speed. But a, a lot of what I've been doing with the max velocity is, um, technique oriented. Cause I've seen a lot of guys improve their max velocity just by learning how to run upright. So that's that's a whole thing that Ken Clark talks about too, and I totally agree with him. Is that a lot of team sport athletes they know how to drive out, you know? So they that's why like the even the sled sprints and stuff with them, like they they know how to do that. It makes sense because they they drive out, but what they don't know how to do is run upright. Um, and a lot of people might argue like, oh, well, my guy's a football player; he doesn't have to run upright. It's like, well, what about when he's on kickoff, or what about when he's on kick return, or what if uh, what if he you you'll see D tackles in the NFL that chase after the ball carrier 30 yards downfield, you know, so it's going to happen at some point. See, that's not a great argument to say that it's never going to happen. It's not a majority of the game, but they still need to know how to do it. Not to mention in college when they're conditioning, what are they doing? They're doing one tens or doing 300 yard shuttles. Like these distance, these distances are large. So they need to learn how to run upright and do it extensively and then do it fast. So I work a lot on technique with these guys, especially working on front side mechanics. Um, Ken Clark talks about how um, elite sprinters are front side dominant from the start all the way to the finish. Like they're just constantly able to drive the knee forward and punch the knee forward. 
Um, so that's something I do a lot with, with my guys is, um, is working on that technique and understanding how to, um, avoid kicking out the back as they call it. Like they, a lot of these guys are big time, butt kickers, you know, they're over arched, they're kicking out the back, their heels, like hitting their ass as their legs coming forward. And, um, they're not getting any knee lift on the front side. So that's something that we really focus on. And, um, you know, we'll do things like, uh, I'll, 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 put it in the slot on my template where it's supposed to be like max velocity work. I'll, I'll just put one of these technical drills in there and that's usually where I start. So it could be something like doing a skips for distance, maybe like 30 to 40 yards of just straight up a skip. So they'd start building that, uh, capacity and understanding of like what that position is, or we could do running A's AKA high knees for 30 to 40 yards. Um, one, one major drill that I've started doing and, um, I've seen a, an awesome fix with guys uh, in, in understanding what it means to be frontside dominant uh, throughout the entire, you know, acceleration or upright or whatever is I, I couldn't even figure out a name for it. I just call it uh, med ball knee punch runs. So basically what it is is they take a really light med ball, like six pounds. You might be able to get away with 10, but it's kind of heavy at that point. I, I like more like three to six pounds just as an object there. You, you can hold any ball. It doesn't have to be a med ball. Um, and you basically hold it at your belly button, like right around your navel. And all I tell them is like, just go ahead and sprint. But the only thing you want to think about is trying to like, try to punch your quad to the med ball as you run. And that's the only drill I've seen that like, just like when they do that drill, they all have awesome front side mechanics. So you just get them doing that drill for a couple of weeks and then you just start slowly taking the ball away. And all of a sudden they just, they do it, you know? So it's funny. I, I, on my social media somewhere way back uh especially on my instagram and i think i posted on twitter too one of my linebackers who used to really kick out the back and put a lot of stress on his hamstrings i had him do that drill for a couple weeks and i posted the before and after video of his technique and how it changed and he he can't go back to the way he used to do it now he only does it the way that uh he's developed how to do it because he feels how much more efficient it is it's sort of like that little wake-up call but that was the only drill I got for him to figure that out. So um, that's a great drill. And then obviously doing things like I'll do intensive tempos, uh, build up sprints. You know, these are these are on our speed days. Um, and then going into more like the flying sprints or like the the speed change sprints. We're going like slow, fast, slow, fast, slow, fast. But step one is definitely getting them to comfortably run in that upright position. Otherwise, if you start throwing flying sprints at them or something, they're just gonna pull hamstrings, pull a hip or something like that. You got to definitely make sure they understand the intention of all that stuff first and that their muscles and their structural, you know, all their structures are are ready to handle that stress. You can't just throw that at them. So I definitely, I'll make that a point too. When I said I use flying tens as a, as a test, I don't test them on that until I know they're ready to do it. (laughs) So I don't just throw, I just don't throw that at them. But um, yeah, that's just some of the examples of what, of what I'm, doing now and in my template uh i basically have one day this this is specifically for football players and i kind of keep this in place all year round is that one both days are going to focus on acceleration work so we're looking at you know 10 to 30 yards of acceleration work like per rep um always maximal intensity trying to stay above you know 95 percent of their best time in that whatever distance that we're doing um full recovery minimal volume and then i basically have one day that's dedicated to after we do that acceleration work, we do our uh, top speed work or our max velocity work. 
um, for a couple reps after that. So maybe we do a couple, you know, tens, twenties and thirties, and then we hit a couple flying sprints or, you know, whatever it is, maybe it's the a skips for distance or something like the technique drill. And then on the other day we're doing same sort of setup at the beginning, the acceleration work unloaded 10, 20, 30, you know, whatever the distance is, depending on who the athlete is. And then, and then I'll do resisted runs after that. Um, and I won't always do, I won't always do max power sprinting. That's just sort of, I'll use that periodically, like what I did uh, in my case study. But I'll do uh, just loaded sprints where they're still like 90% or above of their best time. So just a little bit of load so that they're still working on that uh, force component of acceleration. So basically one day is just kind of caters more towards max velocity. The other day caters more towards the start and early acceleration. That's what I've been playing around with. very recently, like within the last month. And um, it's pretty cool. It's, it's It seems to be a, a pretty good flow. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I think that um, that like acceleration day and then max velocity definitely mirrors a lot of uh, track and field paradigms, workouts you see out of the, the track and field group. I think it similar to when uh, when Chris Corfus and Dan Victor had their um, – this is this is old. Uh, they have, still have it for sale on their website, but this is like old school. If they want to get fast stuff, that was kind of how those uh, workouts kind of played out a little bit. You had those uh, different different days. Uh, that's that's cool. I like that drill. By the way, I'm glad you mentioned the the knee punch drill. Do you have a special name for that? What did you call it again? The knee punch, the little knee punch. Yeah, the yeah I just I didn't know what to call it, so I, just, I I told them to punch their knee towards the ball, so I just call it med ball knee punch drill nice. or med med ball knee ball knee punch runs or something like that. I had never seen that anywhere before. You you just came up with that? Yeah, I, like it's it's funny because like when you think about it, like people that come up with certain things, they just basically, they have to solve an issue that they're finding. And that's what I, I was like. I have this issue of guys that can't, they don't understand front side mechanics. You know, I tried doing like the, the Bosch, like stick on the back drill, which they were still completely messing that up. And I'm like, no, I think something has to be more on the front side of the body because we're telling them to be front side dominant. So uh, I know a lot of guys, you know, when they struggle with back squats, if you do a front squat, you can get them to squat a lot faster and properly and then sort of progress them to a back squat. So I had that same mentality in my head. I was like, maybe if I load the anterior side of the body, they'll, they'll get it a little bit better. Cause they'll kind of, they'll be more upright by default because they're going to have to use their posterior muscles to counteract the weight of the ball in front of them. So now they're going to be more upright and then they just punch their knee to the ball. And that's, that's where my head was at. It actually, it ended up working. <laughs> that's, that is cool. I, uh, yeah, even like yeah, I was actually thinking with the squats. You mentioned I was thinking about it when you said it, but like in in really regressed athletes too, like just a plate squat where you hold the plate out in front of you, like that's you know if, yep. you, if you can't even front squat, you can do anybody can do that. I've never seen an athlete that like can't do that, and so yeah, you get that med ball in front, and that's cool because I mean I've always been a big like don't just tell athletes to put their get their knees up type of person because every time i've told athletes to do it like outside of obviously context like you've created it's never worked like they they can't figure it like they just can't figure it out their body kind of spins in space they'll compensate by not pushing hard enough or but it's like with that ball there i'm i mean actually i was gonna try that drill when i saw it on twitter and i forgot and i'm now i'm kind of annoyed that i forgot to try it um but it seems like it was set up (laughs) It would set up a really powerful like cross extensor too, because it's like the core is set, and now you can follow through with that cross extensor real well. So, I, I think that's I think that's good stuff, man. That's a cool drill. Yeah, it works. 
give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's I, I like it. I like it. Uh, okay, cool. So uh, moving forward to, maybe we'll stay a little bit in the 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 speed the speed training uh, short speed uh, type vein, but uh, kind of a, a slightly different type of question. But if you could kind of synthesize um, the, a lot of the work you've been doing uh, down to only you only have three exercises to improve football sprint acceleration. So acceleration for your football guys, and you have three exercises and, and maybe i'll give you the bonus bonus is actually practicing sprinting so there's four there's your fourth uh but three supporting movements exercises strength training uh sleds plyos whatever uh what would you what would you pick and why would you select that well uh yeah i get, i'll touch on all four i guess I, like the, I'll, I'll even touch on what some of the sprinting and like my ideas as as they relate to that but um yeah, I guess number one, obviously we've already talked about it, but doing the maximum power resistance sprinting in terms of like a, just being a really acceleration specific strength exercise, you know, like a special strength exercise, whatever you want to think of it as, um, because you know, it has, it has that ability to mimic the sprinting motion and, it, and you're producing force in the specific direction that you would when you're accelerating, um, especially in early acceleration. And, um, you know, it's obviously not fast enough for longer sprint distances, but if you're looking for something that's a, a nice complement to improve your sprinting ability, um, in terms of just building up the the muscular qualities you want to see when you're driving uh, in that acceleration phase, that's obviously a great one. So that's number one. Uh, number two um, is definitely, you know, we just touched on the med ball uh, knee punch run. So we could, we could say that's definitely a mainstay, but, um, outside of that is, uh, I love bounding. You know, I think that's a, a huge one that, um, people don't really utilize enough is, is that's, that's another way to really get your guys knowing how to put force into the ground as well. So, um, outside of just doing the really like skips and bounds, I guess, like, uh, I'll backtrack and say one of my more favorite ones for, uh, more acceleration specific force the way I see it is uh, power skips for distance. Uh, I love those because a lot of guys can do that and they can do it pretty well. Um, and they see real quick if, if they don't have that propulsive ability to launch themselves, you know, through time and space and a nice forward launch point, I guess. And um, what I'll do with my guys is basically, you know, you guys get 10 total skips and just like, let's track how far you get, you know, and it's funny because some guys might think that they're like pretty strong, you know, like they're strong in the weight room or whatever. But then it's like, can you apply this force into the ground by doing a power skip for distance? And a lot of them struggle with that. Like there was a guy who when he sprinted, it was like clear as day that he's like just weak, like a weak sprinter, you know. <laughs> so, A, he would benefit from doing the maximum power sleds, of course. But then when we had him do power skips for distance, he could only maybe hit like, 35 40 yards and 10 skips and the, some of these other guys were beyond 50 yards like well beyond 50 yards and 10 skips um and he realized like oh this is a problem i should probably <laughs> i should probably work on this um so i was like yeah you, you probably should so I, I do like doing um power skips for distance and then also just doing uh bounding uh i like doing kind of extensive bounding to work on technique and then also progressing into intensive bounding because i think that's a great way to know how to uh, put force into the ground as well because when you when you really look at sprinting it ends up just kind of being bounding at a very fast pace you know so it's just if you know how to bound 
understanding how to sprint becomes a little bit easier, at least in my experience, um, just training myself. And then also just from feedback from my athletes, they, they sort of understand that springy motion as it relates to sprinting when you've done some bounding work with them. Um, and it also helps strengthen up their ankle complex and uh, allows them to transmit the force from their hip all the way through the ankle into the ground. So that's a great one as well. Um, I think obviously doing flying sprints uh, is actually another great way to improve your acceleration. Um, just because you're increasing your maximum velocity by doing those. And a lot of the Ken Clark research that I've read has shown that um, if you can increase your max velocity, then uh, your ability to accelerate and achieve a faster velocity at any distance will end up going up as well, which is, you know, it's kind of like if you're, uh, if you bench 400 pounds and the other guy benches 200 pounds, you know, your 90% is going to be way heavier than, the other guy's 90%. It's sort of the same thing with speed. If you just have more speed, then by default, at every sub-maximal percentage of that, you're going to be moving faster than the guy who's slower than you. So that's kind of an, another indirect way to improve your acceleration is by working the opposite side of the spectrum and just pushing your velocity higher. So, you know, we talk about doing strength work and power work and stuff that can translate to acceleration, but um, I think more people need to talk about pushing max velocity higher on the other end of the spectrum, which can then have a, another effect on um, your acceleration ability as well. And it's funny because if you look at some old videos by Charlie Francis, I remember he had one where he drew kind of a force velocity graph and he had like this curve and he just drew these little arrows like along the curve. He's like, you just want to pull all these little pieces up you know, <laughs> as you as you improve. So you want to improve the force, you want to improve the velocity and then everything that falls in between. So that kind of goes along with that. And uh, a really cool, a really interesting thing that uh, Ken Clark found in a recent paper that he wrote that's uh, he we we conversed on that I think it's coming out soon. He basically looked at the the 2016 NFL Combine and looked at uh, the acceleration pattern of all of the guys participating in the Combine, and then um, he also like was able to model their velocity that they achieved in their 40 yard dashes and stuff. But what he found is that every athlete at the combine, whether they were a receiver, a defensive back or a lineman, didn't matter who they were. They all sort of had the same acceleration pattern. So uh, basically what he found was that they all, they were all able to reach 96 to 98% of their max velocity by the 20 yard mark, which is crazy. So basically what he's saying is like in track and field, you know, people are modeling a lot of their speed work after track where they're like, Oh, well, those guys don't reach their top speeds till like 50, 60, 70 meters. So you're telling me I have to have my football guys sprint that far to do max velocity work. I might as well just stick with my, my tens or whatever, you know, just work the front end of it and work the, the, the fourth side of the spectrum. But what he's showing in this paper is that technically if you're doing a 20 yard sprint with a football player, you're already pretty close to hundred percent of his max velocity. Mm -hmm. So technically speaking, 20 yards or more is top speed work for a football player. So I thought that was like really really cool finding on his part and really interesting how they all kind of had the same acceleration pattern and it's a little bit different than track which you know you could say is probably just due to the fact that they need to accelerate um faster in their sport in terms of uh accelerating over a shorter distance than a track and field athlete who can spread it out over 100 meters so yeah that's that's another cool one is just maybe thinking about doing instead of focusing on tens or something in the start just push it out a little bit to like 15, 20 yards, maybe 30 yards. And now you're really pushing their speed qualities that much further. 
Yeah, I, I always felt like um, really good or, and or interesting thing hap things happen once you get to top end speed. Uh, just getting there and, and like the rhythm and potentiation things you get from that. Uh, as well as even making people maintain it for a little bit and like that coordination endurance, uh, making people hang on and yeah, I think uh, I think that's it's cool to get to that end of the spectrum for for really any ground-based athlete. I boost Shaxader on I think it was episode, um, uh, it was definitely early teens or, or maybe late teens I think, but uh, just talking about how just doing maximal velocity sprinting for volleyball players, even though they I mean, what's the fastest that those that group's gonna go like three four meters, you know like. Yeah. Five meters, or run, or sprinting back and doing a, you know, maybe the the back row, but um, do is doing top end sprinting improved their vertical jump by a little few inches, you know, just because it was uh, a a really great quality with those those fast. Uh, you're pushing, like you said, Charlie Francis, you're pushing that force curve up. Everything gets a little bit faster, and I think that's that's interesting. So, all right, I'm gonna make you summarize that. We have our three. So we had actual sprinting, heavy sled. It was bounding or power skips and, and top end. We gotta, we gotta. Can we like throw a strength one in there and and maybe like can we can we can we can we, can we you know I know we got some strength stuff in there. I mean obviously it's a little bit different yeah. world, but anything you want to throw in from the weight room just for general sake. Yeah, I like doing um, sort of if you, to use like West Side methodology doing like dynamic effort single leg work. I think that's like a really cool. Um, aspect to add in the weight room um where you, you could even use like chains and bands if you want but just having some way to monitor the uh specifically like what i what i do when i when i do the the dynamic effort um single leg work is focused more on the concentric side of it so um i'll have them kind of control control the eccentric part of it just to make sure they're not like slamming their leg onto the ground or slamming their knee onto the ground uh, but then i want them to explode on the way up. So, um, I'll even have them start from a dead stop sometimes too, and just kind of explode from there. Cause I think that's really helping, uh, emulate something that's a little bit more similar, similar to starting a sprint from a static start. So, um, I guess that's, that's a better way for me to put it is more like static start, like static start concentric dynamic effort stuff. And then what I'm doing with that is pretty much what I've started doing with dynamic effort work is um, I'll throw the tendo unit on there that we have, and I I just tell them to try to get over uh, 1.0 meters per second average velocity. So rather than get too creative uh, and crazy with um, using different velocities and stuff, is I'll actually just switch the exercise every two weeks or so, kind of like they do with Westside, and I'll just keep that speed sort of constant. So they have to maintain that same velocity output in the face of different loads, different exercises. They sort of have to self-organize themselves into figuring that out. But um, yeah, I love doing like the, the real dynamic single leg work, um, I think has a, a huge impact on that as well um, in terms of just gaining that confidence to just explode off of one leg, which is really what sprinting is, you know, in every step you're going off one leg. So um, yeah, I'll add that in there. And you could do different variations. So like some of my favorite ones that I'll do um, are doing like a reverse lunge and then just like exploding on the way up doing like it, this is all like with a barbell for the most part or any kind of specialty bar if you if you have those you know split squats doing explosive step ups uh, rear foot elevated split squats if you um, want to go for that some of these are coordinatively challenging so um, 
I should say that what I do in my program is the more coordinatively challenging they become, I, I don't put a tendo on for those. Those I'll just kind of look for smooth movement. Um, but for like a reverse lunge, which is a little bit more stable than a roof and elevated split squat or just like a regular split squat, uh, for those I'll throw a tendo on and actually measure it and just see you know how fast they're going um, on the concentric side of it. But yeah, I think a lot of the, the single leg work definitely helps with um, building up some confidence in those guys being able to propel off of one leg and uh, that carries over into doing single leg jumps and single leg plyos and then also into sprint work as well. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I like that what you said there at the end, like not stuff that already has a little bit of elements of coordination uh, in there to not tendo that just because it it's like too many, yeah. too many. It's like overcoaching almost in a sense, maybe. Like there's too many, yeah, too many for, things. For those, for those that are like, we have a, a record on our record board, which is actually just for weight. Uh, so we don't really measure the velocity of it. And it's uh, we have a this bar that we got from Perform Better, which is they call it the single leg squat bar. It's just it's like uh, those those hex bars that are they don't have like the backside. Yeah, yeah. Basically, so you can kind of do a whole bunch of single leg stuff with them. And all we do is we elevate the rear foot so it's kind of like a rear foot elevated split squat um but we start at the bottom so i'll actually put like an air x pad on the ground so they put their back knee their back foot on the bench back knee on the pad and then they just get into a nice uh it, we call it a single leg squat lockout because they're in like a really deep uh knee flexion sort of position at that standpoint um and then we just have them just try to lock it out you know so we're not we're not telling them to do it with any kind of crazy speed or anything it's more about like do you have the coordination to just press through this one leg with, you know, you'll have a little bit of help from the, the leg that's on the bench, but that's a new, a new record that we're looking at and just kind of seeing what happens with, with trying that in terms of, is there anything happening on performance? If not, um, you know, I'm sure that there's gotta be some structural aspects of it that are, that are happening that are definitely building up some resiliency all the way, you know, through their hamstring, through their quads and glutes and everything. So, uh, that's a cool exercise that we started, tracking as like a, a strength a main strength lift that we started doing yeah yeah that that lift uh it seems like uh like a really good one for for the demands of uh, you know well any sport really but especially your football guys and yeah uh, i also like the so the idea too of starting from that static start i mean that's probably has a little bit to do with uh muscle slack as well or like rate of force development from that from that dead position yeah i mean that's that's a way to think about it for sure. Um, you know, I, I, I was talking with Joe DeFranco when we decided to throw that on our record board. He, he just likes the idea of, um, you know, I'm sure you could back it up with some reasoning that, that includes like, uh, working on muscle slack and trying to self-organize the, the tension basically without any sort of pre-tensioning, um, and how there's benefits of that. But he, he just liked the idea of just sort of that, you know, mono a mono this is just me versus the bar like i just gotta lock it's kind of like a deadlift but now it's just you know you're on one leg and it's like can i can i just power through this on my one leg and just the confidence that you can give somebody by saying like wow you just did you know like the the strongest guy we've had do it so far because we just started doing it is one of our running backs who did 320 so he locked out 320 on each leg from that dead stop and it's it, you know, he, he did it pretty easily. He probably could have done more, but it was just kind of cool to think like, wow, I got just, he just locked out three, <laughs> over 300 pounds on one leg, like pretty easy. And, um, you know, what does that mean? I don't know, but 
you know, it probably means probably means this posterior chain is pretty strong, and you know, so that's that's good to see it from uh, from you know us thinking about their longevity and their their robustness and things like that. So um, I don't know. We'll kind of we'll see what happens with playing around with this single leg strength a little bit more, and just um, I know for a fact our guys just feel better doing it. Like you know, it, it's stuff that Mike Boyle's kind of talked about for years, which is just how guys just kind of feel good when they're doing the single leg work. Like they feel strong and they're, they're not as beat up in their lower backs and things like that as they might be with really heavy deadlifts, really heavy squats and all that. But, um, yeah, I think there's a huge upside psychologically for, um, beginners and then also pros. It's kind of, it's funny. It's kind of like a little bell curve that happens. Like you, we've been taking a lot of our high school guys and doing single leg strength work with them first and then kind of progressing to bilateral stuff and then still mixing in single leg work all the time. Um, and then as they become pros, we start moving away from bilateral work again, back to just primarily single leg work, just to reduce that structural risk of all that axial loading. And, um, it's funny how it kind of works out, but the pro guys, they love, they love the single leg work. Like they feel like they can do it. They feel safe doing it. And then their legs feel strong. They feel confident in their, in their, in their muscles and just how their legs feel and, I think there's a huge psychological benefit to it, especially with elite level guys. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for those really strong guys. I'm sure that uh, running back who did whatever it was, 340, 350, and the, the single leg from the dead star is probably good for well over 500 or maybe in the 600s on the back squat. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of muscle da- or, you know, spinal loading right there on a, on a high level player who's probably can't afford to be beating himself up too much on those types of things a lot. Right, that's exactly what it is. Is you got to find ways to continue to push them from a strength standpoint without, you know, overloading their spines and, and their hips and stuff that are just taking a beating from playing, you know, sixteen to eighteen plus game seasons in the NFL. I mean, it's just you just got to find the lowest uh, risk to reward ratio when you get to the weight room because ultimately, you know, it's not really. We all know it's not doing all that much for performance at that standpoint. It's more about just. Uh, you know, when I was on the podcast with Kier Wenhamflat, I, I just I referred to it as uh, insurance. Like you're just you're taking out an insurance policy to make sure your your uh, muscles, your tendons, your ligaments, all your connective tissues are are robust. But it's not necessarily going to improve your performance. It's more about just trying to keep your body safe at that at that standpoint. So it doesn't really matter what exercise you use. It should be more about is the athlete comfortable with it? Do they feel good when they do it? Do their legs feel good? Are they getting stronger? Are we can we can we prove that they're getting stronger by measuring something you know whether it's on two legs or one leg if they're going up in weight then whatever whatever they're using is getting stronger you know so um that's kind of how we look at it yeah i like um as you were saying that i was just thinking about something i was just listening to a podcast uh robbie burke did on his all things health and wellness with Kristen thibodeau uh and actually this it was one of the better podcasts i listened to in, in a while he was talking about like the different neurotransmitters dopamine um, acetylcholine, the serotonin, and like the effect of the brain on different types of athletes, and as well as adrenaline, um, and just kind of like the the athletes who are you know a lot of the the, the fire type, like the super fast athletes that Tony Holler would call them the cats, like they're dopamine types, and they they need to be challenged in, like when in what they do, like if you give them just like if you're just to give them you know say hey I know you can do 600 squat, but I just want you to do 350 just to be safe this year they don't get that like excitement out of it that doesn't emotionally stimulate them like they still it's like i'm thinking of that squats also a way to still emotionally stimulate an athlete and challenge them and i'm i'm 
thinking about that a lot myself too ways to continually challenge athletes who are those dopamine types who need it but might not need the load on their back that i that you know a heavy squat might always have for them or at least finding ways to at least get away from that every once in a while i think that's um that's a cool and creative way to do it no doubt that's a great point you bring up because that that running back that i used in the example he is absolutely that guy that needs to be challenged so um you know i I have no doubt, like you said, he could easily squat over 500, maybe even over 600. He's just a strong bastard, you know. So, uh, but I know that he needs to get faster. Like that's his biggest <laughs> detriment is like you, you need to get your speed up. But he loves the weight room, so that's that's exactly right. Like it's just different ways to challenge him uh, while keeping risk minimal. Um, another way is just is doing the velocity based work. Uh, you know, if we do, if I say try to get over one meter per second and to see how heavy you can get once I gave him that one day and he did, uh, we had bands on the bar too. And he did, um, like 385 plus the bands and he was hitting over one meter per second with that. Like he was still oh, crushing man. weight, but it was just like, well, I mean, he's hitting the speed. So <laughs> and it's, it's less than doing 600 on his back. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's another way to do it. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> That's cool, man. So use. Um, I actually did have that question, uh, and maybe we'll finish with that. But uh, uh, how often? Uh, so velocity, uh, uh, velocity monitoring and training, bands and chains. Uh, so velocity, you're pretty much using on um, anything that's not overly coordinated. You usually take a Nintendo on your all your basic lifts. Yeah. So if we're doing a bilateral work, like uh, you know, because we we still kind of keep um, snippets of that that West Side approach in our program. So. Um, if we're not specifically trying to do like force velocity profiling with jumping and stuff like that, if we're more just kind of keeping a basic template, we will sort of stick to a more dynamic day and then a more max effort day. Um, so yeah, what we're doing is on the dynamic effort day, coincidentally or not coincidentally, it's designed this way. That's also the same day that we're doing top speed work on the field. So it's basically just, I look at it as like a velocity day and then a force day. Um, so on our dynamic effort days, yeah, we're 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 looking to do something that we can put the tendo on. So, um, like I said, if we're going to do a single leg variation, it's going to be um, something that's a little bit easier to control. But we're primarily going to be doing bilateral work on that day, um, and then we're just trying to go for for speed. We're trying to explode with it. Um, so I, like I said, I keep it simple. I, I when we do those, I try to keep it one meter per second or higher. But what I've been playing with um, or thought about playing with going forward is um, if we're not using accommodated resistance, so if we're not going to use bands and chains, maybe just not even doing an actual lift, but instead doing a weighted jump in place of that lift. So that, you know, because the biggest, the biggest thing with using the bands and chains is that you can accelerate all the way through the lockout a little bit more than you could if you didn't have those on there because you would have to inherently decelerate yourself before you you know, just fly through your kneecaps or before the bar flies off your back. So I kind of thought to myself, well, what if we just didn't have to decelerate with straight weight either? And instead of just doing a lift, we turned it into a ballistic exercise and just left the ground, you know? So I don't know. I'm going to start playing with that and see what happens. But, um, yeah, definitely if we're doing, um, something that's more of just a, an actual lift, I'll, I'll like using chains or bands with that and then just kind of switching the variation every couple of weeks, just kind of like they do at West side. So, you know, we're either we'll do a box squat with a barbell one week, then maybe we do uh, a sumo deadlift the next week for speed, or just you know we'll just kind of mix it up and then uh, just go from there. And then on our other day, our heavy day, that's where we'll do 
um, you know, a mix of bilateral and unilateral as well. But um, those days, I'm if we're doing a bilateral exercise, I'm trying to keep it between 80 and 85 percent, which I've found corresponds to a velocity that's you know kind of on average between 0.55 and 0.65 meters per second. So um, I don't really use percentage of one RM anymore. I just I just put that velocity on there and I say, hey, just try to stay within this range. And then uh, if you're feeling great, then you'll you can push it closer to the 0.55. If you're not feeling so great, at least give me 0.65 with whatever you can do that day. Um, so that's that's how we think about on those days. And then if we're doing some kind of uh, coordinative single leg exercise, like we talked about before, I just I won't even put a tendo on there at all. It'll just be like, what can you do? Because it's just going to be more about can you even like complete the motion because it's coordinatively challenging. So you want to make sure that you're not overloading them with too much speed or too much weight. It's more about just controlling that at that standpoint. So um, when we do strength work with uh, some of the more coordinatively challenging single leg stuff, I just won't use a, I won't use a velocity. I won't use the tendo unit and um, we'll just kind of see what they can do on that day. Yeah. I I like it, man. I like, um, like you mentioned too, like the band, I'd always, that's something that I had never heard of much. I thought of it, but no, I hadn't heard anyone else really say it until you mentioned it. But the, just using light bands, just so you can like punch the barbell like you know through the roof without worrying about it like slamming on your back. And, <laughs> and uh, if you actually did jump with it, kind of keeping you grounded a little bit. But then, but then moving out of the weighted jumps, I imagine there's still some different dynamic changes between in the body between doing a a, a banded lift and actually jumping. I mean, it's a uh, a little different ballgame. Yeah, for sure. So I'm excited to see how those results play out for you. It sounds it sounds cool. It's a good uh, line of thinking. I would imagine I would probably stick mostly to doing um, some type of dynamic lift with bands or chains on there, but um, I'll mix in a weighted jump here and there and just kind of see what happens over time. Yeah, yeah, jumping's where it's at. I, I Yeah, I'm excited to kind of yeah talk keep talking to you as you move forward with that. I always like seeing what you're up to and I always learn, learn some every time I talk to you, Cameron. So, Hey, thanks for being on today, man. I, I appreciate you taking the time. I know it's getting late out there. You got that early bedtime and you're out, out later <laughs> than me on that East coast. So, uh, thanks again. And I uh, will talk to you soon. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me on again. It was, it was great. Thanks again. All right, thanks for tuning in for another episode. We really appreciate your listenership, and I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did recording it and putting it together. Talking with Cameron is always awesome. He is such a brilliant young coach, and pushing the field forward in the world of heavy sled sprint uh, sprint training, special strength for speed. Uh, speaking of resisted sleds, uh, obviously with or with the 1080 sprint, which is not a sled, but rather probably the best, the single best tool you can get for any sort of uh, high-tech both resistance assistance or measurement of speed uh, that's at the store at our sponsor simplyfaster.com so along with a lot of other amazing training tools so be sure to check that out you can also save on shipping if you're a u.s customer so that's a, a huge perk and uh, they just have a lot of great stuff so be sure to uh, check out simplyfaster.com also if you enjoyed the episode or honestly, even if you didn't, which I would doubt, Cameron's just such a great guy to listen to and talk to, but uh, leave us a review uh, or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We'd love to hear what you think of the show and also love to have others hear what you think of the show. Uh, we will be back next week with another great guest. We will see you guys then.